Plus, there are many today who deal with fear, fear of the future, fear of what's going to happen, fear of the outcome. And so today, God, we pray that you would save us from all that, that threatens and scares us. I, God, we, I pray that today you would um, save those today who doubt, who doubt your goodness, who doubt your reality, who doubt your plans, who doubt what you're doing. I pray, God, that today would be a day that you are gracious and kind to us. God, I pray that in the middle of the fear and the doubt that so many here, so many of us deal with, I pray that you would give us joy. I pray that you would help us to not look to our situations, not look to people, not look to our accomplishments, but instead that our hearts would be glad because the God of the universe listens to us and he cares for us and he promises to never leave us or forsake us. God, we know that there is no other God but you. And I pray that today you would remind us again that that is true. I pray that you would use your word as it is read and it is preached, as we sing songs based on your word. I pray that you would use it to show us again that there is no God like you, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That you will not fail us, you will not ignore us, you won't turn your back on us. God, I pray that you would help us today learn to walk in the truth. It's easy for us to walk in what other people say. It's easy for us to walk in what we feel. I pray, God, that you would help us to instead go to war against our hearts and instead learn to walk in the truth. Learn to cast all of our cares for you, knowing that you care for us. God, I pray that as you have in the past, you would remind us of your steadfast love. Remind those that need to hear it in the middle of the night. Remind them of your steadfast love. Those who in the middle of this week, when angerness, or I'm sorry, when anger and bitterness creep in, I pray that you would remind us of your steadfast love so that we can put those off and put on peace and joy. And we can trust in you when fear and doubt, when control creep in. God, I pray today for our missionaries in Pakistan, the Jacobs family. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, protect them with your hands, that you would protect the work that they are doing. Lord, I pray that their words would be true, that, they would, that he would preach the truth, that their family and the work that they do, that they would live out in the truth, that they would share the truth with their friends and with their neighbors, with the people that are in their church. I pray that true disciples of Jesus would be made. Lord, I pray that you would protect their hearts, help them live lives of integrity and purity as we know that Satan wants to attack when your people are serving you and going out as missionaries. And God, I pray that you would deliver them from Satan's temptations, provide for them in all the ways they need to be provided for. And I pray, Lord, that, that before before accomplishments, before fruit from their ministry, I pray, God, that you would make them into faithful and godly missionaries there in Pakistan. And I pray today for our brothers and sisters down in Greenfield, specifically at Charity. I pray for Preston, Lord, that you would uh, protect his heart. I pray that he would hunger and thirst for you more than he does today. 
I pray that he would love you and long for you. I pray that nothing would quench that in his heart and that he would have a confidence that comes from preaching your word and being found in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that their church would grow in love towards one another, love towards their community, and that they would be about the important work of outreach and discipleship. I pray all of these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. What words stick in your mind as lasting words for you? They could be something positive. Maybe a, a grandparent one time said, they said something. It could be as small as, attaboy, I'm proud of you. It could be something that a parent, a coach, a teacher said that it has, like, it has stuck in your mind. It could be something positive. Could be just a nod, like I said, maybe that you know what it means. Oh, that means he's proud of me. But for a lot of people, the like, the words that like stick in our minds are negative words. I know somebody whose dad once said, "I hate you," and that became the defining words in his life. I hate you. There are, I know people. <laughs> Who are like the, the defining words in their life is that teacher that said, You're too stupid to ever amount for in, to anything. And that becomes the story of his life as he, teacher said, I was too stupid to ever do anything. I wonder what those defining words are for you in your life. It could be an ex once said some cutting words that you've never been able to escape. And so here we are on a Sunday morning. All of us have different words that come in and they motivate us and they discourage us. The words that define us. Today we're going to be looking in Zephaniah chapter 3 to see what God has to say should be the words that get the last word in our lives. Go ahead and turn with me to Zephaniah chapter 3. Today we're going to be looking in verses 9 to 20. One of the challenges to this, the kind of preaching that I've been doing, which it's called, the fancy way of explaining it is expository preaching. It just means taking a passage of Scripture and explaining and applying it to the church. One of the challenges is we spend three weeks in the book of Zephaniah talking about the jealousy and the anger and the judgment of God, explaining and applying it, but you can never actually fully understand and explain a passage of Scripture without saying this chapter fits inside a book, fits inside the whole Bible. And the whole Bible points us to Jesus. So one of the challenges this month has been, we've been walking through Zephaniah, hearing about the burning jealousy of God, and we go, is that it? Is that it? Well, today we get to Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, that says, no, the burning anger and jealousy of God is not the final word. Let's read together. For at that time I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst 
your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Verse 14, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At that time I, when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, I pray that you would help me to make it clear and help us take it to heart and rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage, summing up the message of Zephaniah to Israel, is calling you and I to rejoice because judgment, shame, and guilt will not have the last word in your life. God calls and says, Manchester, rejoice because judgment and shame and guilt will not have the last word. I want to show you from this passage four reasons to rejoice. Four reasons to rejoice. First, rejoice because no one is too far gone. Rejoice because no one is too far gone. Look at verses 9 and 10. This section where God turns to hope says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples. God says, I will do this, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Notice the the, the boundaries here. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Cush is the Old Testament word for Ethiopia. That's where the origin of the, the Nile River was. And he says, God says, the boundaries of the salvation that I'm going to give extend far beyond the land of Israel, far beyond just the people of Judah, far beyond this little place. God says the boundaries include the world. And he says, so that they may worship and call on the name of the Lord. We've seen in the book of Zephaniah up to this point God's judgment on all of the nations around Judah. He starts and goes counterclockwise and says the Philistines. He says the Moabites and the Ammonites. He says the Assyrians. The, the, uh, the Ethiopians are mentioned in this book. God's judgment is going to include everybody around Judah. And then here he comes and says, my salvation is going to go that far. As my judgment goes. 
My salvation is going to extend as far as my judgment goes. You see, Zephaniah, we've mentioned this, I've mentioned this in this series. Zephaniah fits in a weird place in the timeline of Israel. So we remember the creation story with Adam and Eve, and then the flood with Noah, the promise to Abraham. We know the story of Moses and the Exodus, the kingship of David, and then the decline of Israel's kings. And so now, right before the end of the kings of Israel, comes this this prophet, Zephaniah, who comes from the family of the king and says, Judah, turn back, turn back from your sin. And so Zephaniah fits in this place where God says, Judah, I'm going to send you into exile as discipline for your sin. And then he comes and says, but I'm not done with you. Judah, I'm not going to be done with you. You're not going to be too too far gone. He says, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, the daughter of my exiles, I'm not done with you. Ethiopia, I'm not done with you. When my, I, I am calling out with judgment and God says, you're not too far gone. And so forgiveness and grace doesn't start in the New Testament. It starts in the Old Testament. The plan of God from the beginning was to teach the people, you have not obeyed and you cannot obey, so don't think you can. God himself is going to have to do it. And so here God says, Judah, you're not too far gone. Here he says, Manchester, you're not too far gone. No matter who your parents are, no matter what your family's done, no matter the secrets that are hidden in your past, no matter the struggles that the future holds, the fear, the doubt, the bitterness, the anger, the emptiness, God says, rejoice because you're not too far gone. Nobody is too far gone. God calls out to Manchester and says to our friends and neighbors, the ones that are addicted to drugs or their parents are addicted to drugs, the ones we go to school with, the ones that we work next to, the ones that have a history and a past, God calls out to them through us and says, rejoice, you're not too far gone. I haven't ignored you. I haven't forgotten you. God calls to every person through the book of Zephaniah and says that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. You're not too far gone. So if this passage is really carrying the theme of the Bible. From God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would bless every nation of the earth through Abraham. Zephaniah is like, it's still in effect. It didn't stop. It didn't stop when the Philistines attacked God's people. It didn't stop with Lot's shame and his family's shame. It didn't stop when Moab opposed Israel. It didn't stop when Assyria came in and wiped out the the ten tribes of the north. God plan from the very beginning from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation is every nation tribe and tongue every family God's God's plan from the beginning has been that nobody is too far gone for his promises and so if you're sitting here today and you wonder if you're too far gone if God's just so tired of you because you keep going back to that sin you haven't gotten over it because you still struggle with despair and doubt and fear, you still are so selfish, 
You still love yourself more than others. And you go, God, you must be sick of me. Zephaniah says rejoice because nobody is too far gone. Along with that is a call to you and I to make God's goal our goal. If we are called to rejoice that nobody is too far gone, then I think there's no place in the church to be like, ah, Illinois, ah, Manchester, ah, West Central Illinois. The problems are just so great. Can you believe it? Throw up our hands and say, forget it. God, right here, calls to Judah right before judgment. And he says, rejoice because you're not too far gone. And so you and I have to begin to look at our friends and our neighbors instead of shrugging and saying, how dare you? How could you? Instead say, you're not too far gone either. We begin to look at our family and our extended family differently. Maybe you look at your grandkids or your great-grandkids, and this gives hope and says, they're not too far gone either. Sure, they might be hard-hearted. Sure, they might be rebelling against God. But here God calls and says, from beyond the rivers of Cush, from the very farthest reaches, God is calling worshipers. Second reason to rejoice from this passage is because rejoice because God saves from shame and purifies. Look at verses 11 to 13. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty or proud on my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Here he's calling to Judah, and notice the number of times he says the word shall. I am going to do this. God is going to be the one, he says, who removes the shame and the guilt of the people. And then purifies them for himself. That's, the, that's so flipped from the order we think the Old Testament has, doesn't it? We think that the Old Testament says, purify yourself so that you can come. Clean your hands, clean, fix up your lives so that you can come and worship. And God says, I am going to. I am going to remove your shame. I'm going to be the one that's going to purify you so that there's no deceit found in your mouth. I'm going to be the one. And so the very thing that keeps Israel from God in the Old Testament, Zephaniah here promises, God says, I will fix that. I will remove the shame and the guilt that has been continually keeping Israel from worshiping. You see, I think that's one of the great messages of the prophets. Is the prophets are like, this is what you should do. You are not doing it. God has to do something else. Because you need to understand this lesson. That you cannot save and purify yourselves. You're not going to remove this from your life and from your heart. God comes to Judah here. And says, Judah. Shame isn't going to have the last word in your life because I'm going to do something about it. God says, I am going to be the one that removes, saves you from this shame and purifies you from the pride that
that has separated you from me. I'm going to be the one that uh, changes your heart so that you seek refuge in my name, so that you speak the truth instead of falsehood. This idea of removing shame, I think, is one of the amazing stories of Jesus in the Gospels. Because the, the religious leaders at the time thought, Jesus, how could you be with sinners? How could you be with people like this? They're going to stain you. And Jesus teaches the lesson that the holiness of God is so powerful that it removes shame, that takes it away, doesn't get stained by it, and isn't trying to say, oh, keep back, you're so shame-filled. God's holiness is so strong and so powerful and so pure that he can use it to go and clean the woman at the well who has to go to the well in the middle of the day because her life is so filled with shame she can't even be seen with other people. Jesus' holiness is so powerful that it can purify a sinful woman who comes and washes his feet with her hair. Jesus' holiness is so powerful that it takes away the shame of the lepers who go, nobody has touched me. And Jesus is like, I can do it. I can do it. I can be the one that removes shame and purifies the people. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they missed it. They desperately wanted to be pure. But instead of coming to the God of Zephaniah who says, I will remove their shame. I am going to be the one to do this. They thought they could do it themselves. And it's the gospel of God that is the very plan A of God. The gospel is not plan B of God that explains to us how God purifies us from shame. You see, it's a mistake to think that God had one plan and when that didn't work out, then he decided to come himself. The Bible is very clear that it was Jesus in, uh, Jesus saving on the cross that was God's plan A of salvation. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. From Adam and Eve to the people at the very end of the Bible, to the people in our day, all of us have rebelled against God saying, I will live my own way. It shows up in all sorts of ways. Rebellion against authority, bitterness and anger, unforgiveness, lust, sexual sins, theft, greed. All of these are ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God and God must punish it in his jealous anger with death in this life and eternal death in hell forever. But the story of the Bible is that instead of leaving us here in our sin and in our shame, God comes and lives the life that we should live, dies the death that we should die, and is raised to life so that he can remove the shame Change the destiny of all who repent of sin in Jesus. That's you and I's story. That's the how God is doing this. And so this passage says, if this is your story, rejoice. If this is your story, rejoice that God has already saved us from shame and purified us. God doesn't motivate us with shame and, oh, well, why can't you clean your act up? The gospel says, I've already taken away your shame. Go free. Rejoice. And so today, this is a call to you and I rejoice because God saves from shame and purifies. If you have never repented of sin and trusted in Jesus, let today be the day so that you can rejoice. Stop trying to clean yourself up before coming to God. Instead, look to Jesus and find that shame and guilt are taken away. The third reason to rejoice from this passage is rejoice 
because God draws near. Look at verses 14 to 17. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I think these are the sweetest verses in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah has talked so much about the judgment of God. It's talked so much about our responsibility to be and do something different. And then we stand guilty before God. That when we get to Zephaniah with that that knowledge in our minds, I should have lived differently. I should have loved my neighbor as myself. I should have loved my wife and kids instead of loving myself. I should have offered my life as a blessing to other people. I should be quick to forgive and slow to anger. This this whole book leaves us with the guilt laid on top, and then we get to verses 14 to 17, and he says, You shall never again fear evil. The Lord your God is in your midst. Here he says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. This idea in these verses, because it's repeated twice, is the Lord your God is in your midst. Depending on your translation, those are the exact same words. The Lord your God is in the middle of you. The Lord your God is present with you. Judah, Judah that's about to go into exile, that knows the judgment of God. The Lord is not leaving you alone. The Lord is in your midst. What's he going to do when he's in their midst? What's he going to do? He says, the Lord has taken away your punishments. The Lord who is in your midst has turned your enemies back. The Lord who is in your midst saves you. He takes delight in you. He quiets you with his love. He says, and he exults over you with loud singing. Is that your image of God? Is that your image of God? What is God like? God is like a joyful father who does everything to fix the mess that I've made and takes me up in his arms and sings over me with delight. The Lord grabs me in his arms and dances and sings over me. Is that the image that you have of God? Or is it of a cosmic Santa Claus who's making a list and checking it twice? Is the image that you have of God a judge sitting in the judgment seat, wagging his finger and saying, how dare you? Is the image that you have of God a divine creator who set the world in motion and doesn't care anymore? Doesn't care enough to be involved in your life? Or is the image that you have of God a loving father who wakes up in the middle of the night and rocks you to sleep while singing delightfully over you? 
that's a hard image to hold when you're in a hospital room or when you're in a funeral home. It's, it's a hard image to hold when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're scared. But Zephaniah says it, so it's true. This is what God is like. He is like a loving father who loves to take his child up in his arms and sings over us. If you sinned this week, this is still true. If you were proud this week, this is still true. If you rebelled against God this week, this is still what he's like. If you've doubted his goodness, this is still what he's doing. He, the Lord your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you with his love. I don't know everything that has happened to you this week. I don't know everything you've done. I don't know what this next week holds for you. And in truth, I don't know what God is doing in your life. But I do know that this is what he's like while he's doing it. He's singing over you with joy and gladness. And so we can go into this next week not knowing how we're going to fail him. Not knowing our sin that's still going to be at war in our hearts. Not knowing the difficult circumstances we might find ourselves in. But when we get there, we will find a God who is singing with delight. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that this is what we're going to find this week and next month and next year? I'm sure I've told this story, but 20 or so years ago, I read an article by an author named Andrew Uh, Andrea Sue, and she tells the story of her parents were totally different. Her, Her mom was devoted at home, doing everything that needed to be done, cooking meals, washing clothes, folding clothes, taking the kids everywhere they needed to be, and the dad worked all the time, except on Sunday. And it was on Sunday that they would go and get ice cream, and they would throw a baseball, and When the kids were grown, they gushed about growing up with dad. And her mom was bitter. Her mom was angry and was like, mom. And the mom was like, how? He was never here. And I don't condone that kind of parenting at all. But Andrea said, she said, mom, the difference was dad delighted in us. Delighted in us. Sure, we didn't get him very much, but when he was with us, he was so happy in us. And I, I can't get that idea out of my head because I, I think that you and I here today need to get it in our head that God delights in us. Us, the real us. Not the one that we could be. Not the one that might fix ourselves down the road. Not the one that someday might behave and look right and behave right. But that the God of Zephaniah loves us as we are today. He's not waiting until we get our act together. So hear me that God delights and sings and does good to you. Write that in our skin. Let us know that at the deepest part of our heart. God's not waiting until he's happy. He's happy now because of Jesus. The fourth reason to rejoice from this passage is rejoice because of God's promise. Rejoice because of God's promise. Look at verses 18 to 20. This is where it kind of sums up the whole thing. 
I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Verse 19, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Sorry, my eyes got a little cloudy. Here, this calls us to rejoice because look at all of his promises. Look at how many times he says, I will. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. Those of you that want to come to worship but you can't, I'm going to gather you. I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save those of you who limp, can't walk right. Those of you that go through life limping and saying, God, how long? He says, I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise. I will give them fame in all the earth, he says. I will bring you in. I will gather you together. I will restore your fortunes. Here in Zephaniah, right before Israel goes into exile, right before they feel the judgment and jealousy and anger of God, he says, this isn't the last word. Judgment and exile isn't the last word. I will do this. I'm coming for you. I'm going to gather you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to change your shame into fame. I'm going to bring you in together. Israel, I am not done with you. What I want you to notice from this is this is a call for us to rejoice because we have a promise-making God. We have a God who promises. The last word is not you should. It's I will. The last word of God through the prophet Zephaniah is watch what I'm going to do, Israel. God says, I'm going to be the one who gets the last word. And so this is a call to you and I to begin to reshape our walking with Jesus from being this is what you should do to what is God doing? What has he promised to do? Let me trust in him. Let me believe in him. Let me walk with him. We have a promising God. He gets the last word. And we have to reframe everything about our lives around him and his promises and his work in us. This isn't the only time that he's promised. Genesis chapter 3 is when he first makes a promise where he says, I will crush the head of the serpent. In Romans, Paul says that God has kept that promise in Jesus that the serpent has been crushed. The story of the Bible is of a promise-making and in Jesus, promise-keeping God. And so if you're here today and you go, what reason do I have to rejoice? Because God gets the last word. God gets the last word in your life. Your dad doesn't get the last word in your life. Your ex doesn't get the last word in your life. Your sin doesn't get the last word in your life. Your kids, your grandkids don't get the last word in your life. That teacher doesn't get the last word in your life. Your biggest mistake is not the last word in your life. 
God stands up and says, I get the last word. I get the last word. So listen to his voice and rejoice. This passage calls us and says, Rejoice because judgment, shame, and disgrace will not have the last word. Maybe you hear this. Rejoice because no one's too far gone. Rejoice because God saves from shame and purifies. Rejoice because God draws near and rejoice because God gets the last word. Maybe you're excited right now and you have plans this week. You're like, oh yeah, this week is going to be different. This week I'm going to rejoice. But what are you going to do when you get distracted this week? What are you going to do when you find that you've been looking this week to other things, situations, accomplishments, pleasures, or people to satisfy you and give you a reason to rejoice? When the shame of your failure sets in on Tuesday, where's the good news for you? The good news in this passage is that God himself promises to put away the sins of the people. God himself says, I will redeem and protect and defend and deliver. That's the what God is doing in this passage. But the good news of the, the gospel is it tells us how. God says, I will deliver from shame in this passage. I'm going to protect and defend and deliver. I am going to be the one to do this. Well, Jesus, fully God and fully man, came to earth and for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That's the how. Rejoice because Jesus says, I'm from the line of Judah and Rahab and Ruth. I called the criminal on the cross to me. Nobody is too far gone. Rejoice because Jesus says, my name is Emmanuel, God with us. I will never leave you or forsake you. Rejoice because Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come back for you. Rejoice because Jesus sings over you with delight today and this week. I want you to imagine with me what changes this week. When you're rejoicing, doesn't come because of how you performed this week. Because you didn't yell at your kids. You didn't get in a blow-up fight with your spouse. Imagine what changes this week when you don't rejoice because whatever that sin, you always go back to. It's not because you, well, okay, fine, I had a good week. I didn't go back to my sin. Imagine what changes when you can rejoice because you say, God is singing over me with joy and has taken away my shame. I do not get my joy from what I do or my circumstances this week. Imagine the freedom that sounds like this week. Imagine the confidence that comes this week, no matter what it is you're facing, you knew deep down in your heart, God sings over me with joy. When I'm scared, when I'm bitter, when I'm struggling, when I don't know how to go on, when I'm worried, imagine what changes in that situation when you go, and God my Father sings over me with joy comforts me with his love. Imagine what changes in your home when the joy in your home isn't because things are clean and orderly or because you've made yourselves look good to the world outside, but because your home has a heavenly father who sings over it with joy. Like the real people in, in, at home who limp, who struggle. Imagine what changes in our community, 
if our friends and our neighbors in Manchester and beyond heard for the first time the God who requires is the God who provides because he sings over you with joy. Imagine what might change in our community when they get to hear for the first time of that kind of God. I think that might make somebody sit up and take notice. Because nobody else says someone's singing over you. And I pray that that'll be true through us. That whoever we work with at the job site, whatever kid that you get to minister to in your school this week, might get to hear for the first time, God has the last word. Let's pray. God, I thank you that the last word in my life isn't from somebody else. and It's not from my sin and my shame. It's from you. I pray that you would set us free in that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.